0: This could very well be the Achilles heel that brings down the coalition that he's already got a tepid hold on and is struggling to pull together.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is the weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they are shaping the political landscape. And on today's outstanding panel, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of Lincoln Project, who is now a senior fellow at the UC Irvine School of Social Ecology, Mike Madrid. Great to see you as always. Welcome back. Great to be here.
0: Looking forward to the show today.
1: And we have uh, one of Mike's besties joining us is Anthony York. Anthony was a senior communications advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom until very recently. Before that, he covered California and national politics for more than two decades for the Los Angeles Times and Salam.com. Anthony, welcome back to the show. Newly
2: liberated. Good to be back. Good to be back.
1: (laughs) First, the Michigan primary. Uh, The protest vote against President Biden's Israel policy and whether it was a show of force or if it backfired. Then we'll look at the South Carolina Republican primary, what it means for Nikki Haley's role in the race and the weakness it shows for Donald Trump. Later, we'll look at two issues that could be uh, decisive in this election cycle. The battle over IVF and border security and the rising perception that illegal immigrants commit more violent crime. Then we'll find out what other political developments our panel are paying attention to and why. Finally, for our Politicology Plus members, we're going to discuss the crypto super PAC targeting Katie Porter in the California Senate primary, but really what it shows about the industry maturing as a political force and what we should expect to see as the traditional coalitions around banking seem to be shifting. If you're not yet one of our amazing Politicology Plus members, you're missing about 30% of the episodes we record each week. So if you want to hear more from our brilliant guests, politicology.com slash plus is how you can get access to everything we publish. And it's all ad free. And you'll be joining a very thoughtful group of very pro-democracy listeners who help keep this show going. To level up right now, go to politicology.com slash plus or click the link in your show notes. Okay, before we begin, I have a little bit of housekeeping on our effort to help Molly McHugh raise funds to help Ukrainians uh, buy some of those much-needed drones for surveillance and communications missions. Um, There has been an outstanding response from Politicology listeners, Molly's told us, and she was able to get them the first batch of drones by Valentine's Day. So they've now had them for a little over a week now, and they say they're awesome, and they are very happy with them. So uh, again, a huge thanks to everybody who's been part of that. Molly is now, I think, in Ukraine. Uh, There's still time to pitch in because they are just around the corner from being able to buy the used pickup truck uh, that they very much need. And uh, this is the last time we'll uh, make this appeal, but we're going to put the link in the show notes today. Um, And also, there is a video Molly sent, uh, texted just uh, the other day to me. We'll play the audio here so you can listen to it. Um, And she's going to email it to everybody who donated.
0: Hi, everyone. Today we want to send Mali and wealthy volunteers who helped us to buy the first batch of FPV drones. Your help is available. Your support helps democracies to win this war. God bless America. Slava Ukraina.
1: And also, Congress, do your job. Send the maid. On Tuesday, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump easily won their primary races in Michigan. Uh, But ahead of that election, there was a lot of attention on the campaign to get Democratic primary voters to vote uncommitted as a protest against Biden's policy on Israel. So this effort was started and spearheaded uh, by mostly young Arab and Muslim organizers called Listen to Michigan, uh, which has been urging President Biden to call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza and to stop sending USAID to Israel. Uh, On Tuesday, 13% of the electorate voted uncommitted, which is only slightly higher than the 11% who voted uncommitted in 2012 without a campaign. 40% voted uncommitted in 2008 when the Obama and Edwards campaigns organized an effort to get people to vote uncommitted because they weren't on the ballot. Uh, So there were enough votes to win two uncommitted delegates to the Democratic National Convention this summer, but the raw numbers look uh, a bit worse for Biden than the percentage of vote share. 100,000 people voted uncommitted this time, um, which is a very large number of people. But it's less than Biden's margin of victory over Trump in 2020, which is about 154,000 votes. And I guess you could say uh, Biden's not as strong of a candidate as he was in 2020. So think about these numbers uh, with a little bit of nuance. The (laughs) also-rans. Dean Phillips managed to finish fourth in this two-person race, coming in at 2.7% of the vote, trailing Marianne Williamson's 3%. Uh, Williamson had suspended her campaign. But then she announced on Wednesday morning that she's unsuspending her campaign not to be outdone. Since this uncommitted campaign was in response to Biden's policy on Israel and Hamas, it's worth noting that a day after Biden said a temporary ceasefire deal might be imminent, Hamas rejected the proposal for ceasefire talks, uh, saying they would not trade more hostages they kidnapped from Israel for Palestinians imprisoned for terrorism. So, Anthony, let's lead off with you this week. Um, The point of the uncommitted vote was to send a message the Biden campaign. The question though is, do you think they got enough votes to send the message they intended, or did they end up sending a different one?
2: Well, look, I I think given the political landscape and in a world, in in a political world that is so divided where every state matters and the margins are so small, every little piece matters, right? I mean, I think it is true that just, you know, broader speaking, and obviously Michigan more than other states because of the demographics, but uh, but the, the war in Gaza is, has been another sort of splintering of pieces of the democratic coalition. And, and again, as you mentioned, you know, now uh, this is a very different campaign with Biden running as an incumbent, maybe people sort of in denial a little bit about the threat that Trump poses to the future of our country. They've, you know, we've all tried to heal and, and, and forget a little bit, perhaps just as, as a, as a way of healing. And so maybe some of that urgency isn't there, but, it, but it's going to be, um, look, every, every election, you have to figure out a way to rebuild the coalition and it's not rocket science. I mean, Biden needs one of those four States to, to get to 270: 70, Michigan, uh, North Carolina, Georgia, which we'll talk about later, or Arizona. I mean, you, you know, to get to 270, 70, he needs at least one of those States. And so, uh, You know, in in a state that was decided by such narrow margins, this is a significant issue. Whether, whether you know, whether this week's primary was 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 that message? I I don't know that there was any new message sent. I think the Biden the Biden team knew going in that that uh, the war in Gaza is an issue, and uh, you know, I mean, how that plays out over the next six seven months will uh, definitely, I think, have an impact on on this campaign.
1: Mike, since October seven, there's been this ongoing conversation about whether Biden needs to be concerned about losing his left flank uh, because of Gaza. Michigan is um, where it will probably be felt the most acutely uh, because of the high Arab American population. Um, So how should we be thinking about raw numbers versus the percentage of the primary electorate here? And if you're on the Biden campaign team, how concerned are you about it now?
0: Let me tell you where I'm at, and then I'll tell you kind of where I think Biden folks should be. I'm not concerned about this at all. And most of this, I think, is largely overblown. I think I think what we're realizing as we get into the third, you know, primary state and are looking at Super Tuesday, there's a lot of navel gazing and there's kind of what I guess Democrats call, you know, bedwetting about the concerns of their base and whether they can win. And they're looking at the existential threat of Trump and saying how can we be behind in all of these polls and I I get that. That that to me it's to me it's a bigger motivator and and, and point of focus to get people to realize that this is coming and you better get ready for this. All of Biden's weaknesses have been fixable. They're, they're all fixable. Um, if you take the number of uncommitted and add up all the third parties and other folks Anthony and I were talking before we went live here, it's still like 20% or less. I mean that that that's not a point. That's not a that's not a, a point of concern uh, mathematically in in a contest like this. You start getting to thirty five percent, thirty two percent. Yeah, I'm worried. You're sitting under twenty in a battleground state where there was an actual concerted effort to undermine your candidacy from within your own party, and the most they can muster is thirteen percent, which is in the historical you know average of of where the state has always been like come on let, let's stop pretending like there's this huge amount of leverage and he's got this massive problem on his left flank is it an issue yeah it's an issue is it something that's going to doom his campaign no no not even a little bit like i said sorry but it's it's just not and I, for, for those that want to make this more of a political issue you have got a lot more work to be doing if you're going to make a political threat like this, like she did, you know, as as a sitting member of Congress, saying we're going to flex here, and and you can't muster anything beyond the historical average for this level of support. I, you you not only you know missed the ball, you you, you really undermined the, the the salience of your message. That's what happened here, and I think that's what's going to start being realized. I just I think the map looks different. The 270 map looks different. Michigan's important. I think Biden wins Michigan. But I also think he's going to start winning states like North Carolina uh, that, that we, was out of grasp in 2020 because the, the coalitions are shifting. We've talked a lot about the Hispanic rightward shift. We've talked a lot about college-educated suburban women shifting leftwards. This will likely be the fourth election cycle in a row. This predates Dobbs. Where the number of college educated white women moving away from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party continues. That's, four elections in a row, is, it's, that's a realignment. I um, mean, yeah, I'll, I'll say right here, has it happened yet? No. Is it lining up to be? Yeah. And when it does happen, I'm sure we'll get on the phone or on the, on the pod and we'll talk about it, right? We'll explain it and walk through the numbers. We'll probably get on the phone first and talk about it, but then we'll talk about it on the podcast. And right now, mathematically, understand something. There are a lot more white suburban college educated Republican female votes than there are Arab American votes in total in the state of Michigan. Okay? That's where the votes are. You go fishing where the fish are. And the fish are are in the burbs. And if you look at Trump's performance in the burbs, it was not good. It was not good. He was not performing the way that he needed to to get the margins that he's going to need to win a state like Michigan. So, like, I, I don't want to dismiss the efforts, the importance, and the saliency of the issue, but it's got to be put in perspective. We have this way of kind of magnifying these voices. And, and if you if you're on social media or if you're watching cable news, you're probably thinking like the entire world has shifted. Uh, based off of this one issue, it, it has not. It certainly has not to this point, point. and I think the election results in Michigan on Tuesday night uh, demonstrate that.
1: Okay, last uh, question on this topic to you, Anthony. We've talked about Dean Phillips uh, a bit on the show, uh, and whether he's staying in the race to become, you know, the option if Biden falls or you know forgets what year it is. Uh, now Marianne Williamson is seeing that she's actually beating Phillips and wants back in. She's unsuspended her campaign. So how plausible is it that either of these candidates would be the backup option if something happened to Biden, or is it more likely somebody who's not currently in the race?
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know what you're getting at about that second part, but the first part, I don't don't know if that's a serious question either. Uh, No, there's like a, I mean, you know, I think Dean Phillips was statistically within the margin of error of zero in the last election. That's also probably his chances of being the Democratic nominee. Um, You know, but no, it's it's if it's not Biden, it's it's not those two. I don't know who it would be, but I know who it wouldn't be. And it certainly would not be those two.
1: We're going to have you on speed dial. It It was a nice try. It was a nice try. Okay, South Carolina. Over the weekend, Donald Trump won the Republican primary in former Governor Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina by about 20 points. Um, by the way, shout out to South Carolina for holding uh, their primary elections on Saturdays. Just you know, I don't know how many other states do that, but not very, not very common. Haley won about 40% of the vote. Uh, usually, somebody beating their opponent by 20 points on their home turf would be a win, but in this case, it actually revealed a significant problem for Donald Trump. According to the AP's exit polls just over one in five GOP primary voters said they won't vote for Trump in November if he's the nominee. After losing in South Carolina, Haley reiterated that she won't drop out of the primary before Super Tuesday, late March, early March. Uh, Although the Koch network announced that they would stop spending money on her behalf after South Carolina. So on Tuesday, Haley told the Wall Street Journal that nominating Donald Trump would be, quote, like suicide for our country. But just a week prior, she told NPR that Joe Biden is more dangerous than Donald Trump. Uh, Haley also told CNN's Dana Bash that it's very possible—her words—that the Republican Party has shifted away from her beliefs and towards <laughs> Trump's genius. Uh, genius. Maybe she's onto something there. <laughs> she cracked it, <laughs> yeah. which is maybe why on Wednesday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announced he would be stepping down from his leadership role in November. By the way, his number two in the Senate. Minority Whip John Thune endorsed Trump over the weekend. Uh, So one of the things that got completely and largely overshadowed, by the way, by South Carolina, was that Trump spoke at CPAC last Saturday. He continued his attempts to brand himself as a political dissident. Here's a clip of that speech.
0: And in many ways, we're living in hell right now, because the fact is Joe Biden is a threat democracy he really is a threat to democracy i stand before you today not only as your past and hopefully future president but as a proud political dissident i am a dissident
1: i am a dissident mike he learned a new word so the question is and we'll come back to haley's numbers in a minute but how many dissidents do you know shitting in gold toilets
0: well i wasn't expecting that question that way. <laughs> I do know he had to practice the word a few times uh, before he went out and gave the speech. Let me talk about Nikki Haley, if I could, just a little bit. Um, There's a lot going on here, but I don't think it's what most people think it is. Uh, Most of Haley's vote is anti-Trump vote. There's nobody out there like going, oh, I really love Nikki Haley's politics and blah, 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 blah. Those people are really hard to find. She's become, as I was saying months ago, The standard for the resistance, and the amalgam of all these coalitions, you know, voting for Nikki Haley as a way to kind of stick it to Trump. That that that's fine. But let's also not read into it more than that's what it is. There are a lot of these these efforts to kind of be like pro-Haley and somehow it's hurting Trump. Not really. I mean, not not really. You've got Democrats moving over that are hyper-partisanized Democrats that will re-register and vote against you know uh Donald Trump in the primary all that's doing is creating this noise and clutter on the data so we can actually see what's really going on i think it's a sign of intensity by the way for democrats which is important you've got independents which are breaking away from uh Trump in an unprecedented way in these primaries that's very important data but the most critical piece is how many republicans how many registered republicans are actually Saying first of all that they're not going to vote for Trump, but it will ultimately stick there. And the number I think you right. just read is one in five, right? I mean, that's an enormous yeah. number. That's that's three and a half twenty percent. That's yeah. three and a half yeah. times the number was four years ago this month when you and I were with the Lincoln Project and we're looking at the data, going, how can these Republicans be sticking this guy? Because we were right in the middle, as you'll remember, at this time of year, in the middle of the impeachment, the first impeachment hearings, where he's on audio tape recording. Blackmailing Zelensky, right? Let's remember that's what the impeachment was about, and 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 now what we're seeing is three and a half times the number of Republicans are saying I won't vote for him under any circumstance. Now I'm not. I've been doing this long enough in this Trump era to know that most of those, the vast majority of those folks, will still go back to vote for uh, for Trump when it becomes a Trump Biden contest. But I'd much rather be in this position now. With running with Joe Biden as an incumbent, with a lot of the fundamentals looking very strong, with his base largely being, you know, uh, if not intense, then fixable towards his side with the intensity being against Trump, with three and a half times the number of Republicans now openly explicitly saying, I will not vote for him. Now, does that mean it's going to be a landslide election? No, it does not. I think it's going to be a very, very close race. And I think the advantages significantly favor Joe Biden in a re-election. In large part, to me, the most important data point is those defecting Republicans. And I'd much rather see time, effort, and energy going after those Republicans and chipping, chipping, chipping to get that number from three and a half To four or to four and a half then I would see trying to get all these other groups, all these other disparate groups backing Haley, because it's not helping Haley. Haley's not only not going to continue as a result of that, that's not going to be, I assure you, the size of her margins is not going to determine whether or not she stays in the race. One, that has nothing to do with what is going on here. It also isn't changing the narrative at all. It's also not changing voting behavior at all. It's making a lot of people feel good who are otherwise paralyzed by the fear of Donald Trump becoming the nominee, pretending like they're doing something. It's not. And like I said, is it a bad thing? No, but it's not the best thing that we could be doing at this point. And and what Nikki Haley's candidacy is providing us is a glimpse of what the never Trump Republican numbers are. One final thing, I don't care if Nikki Haley pulled out after Super Tuesday, her numbers are going to stay the same. Her campaigning has nothing to do with the performance that she's getting because this is not about Nikki Haley. It's about being (laughs) anti-Trump, and it doesn't matter how much money she raises. I don't care if the Koch brothers pull out. I don't care about how much money she raises or spends. I think it's great. It gives the media something else to write about and focus on, but in terms of voting behavior, all that we should be focused on is attacking the Republican base with the right messages to make sure that they come off in the primary because a Republican voter who votes for Nikki Haley is far less likely to go back to Trump in November than somebody who's been with him two times.
1: So I want to come back to Nikki Haley in a minute because I want to drill into how that that 20% number a little bit. Um, but in the meantime, Anthony, from the Democratic side, there's been this there's like this tension between uh, wanting to feel good versus changing voting behavior. And I wonder, first of all, can you, can you speak to that tension and how Democrats can think about changing votes and actually working on persuasion instead of getting those anti-Trump feel good Vibes, you know.
2: I think Mike, Mike alluded to it before, right? I mean, I, it's it's suburban women and and the framing and and hammering the abortion debate, not not allowing Trump to get away from the abortion issue. We've seen we've seen in election after election that that is an issue that has moved voters in swing states in in swing races. I mean, you know, the the race to replace George Santos largely, you know, that that's in the suburbs of New York, right? I mean. A race that re- that Republicans won two years ago. They got crushed. They got crushed. And so there are warning signs all over the place. And I think you saw uh, my my former boss last week launching some ads uh, on this very issue uh, in in red states and wrapping this issue around their neck. Don't let them get away. Trump's Supreme Court gave us Dobbs. Donald Trump gave us Dobbs. The reason this this Republican war on women that we're seeing is. Uh, is a direct result of Donald Trump. And don't let them reframe the debate with 16 weeks or whatever they want to make it. These are these are extremists on this issue. And that's an issue that resonates in the suburbs uh, across this country. And I think that, uh, you know, I think given, given look, the Biden, nobody has been a, a stauncher defender of the Biden record. I've heard the speech so many times, publicly and privately, <laughs> from, uh, from a certain governor of California about what the statistics say about the economy. It's not necessarily how people feel, right? But I think that. But the issue that that does get a uh, a visceral reaction is that abortion issue, and I think that's obviously going to be. This is not rocket science. I think. Um, I think that is going to be the issue in key races around the state, and going after a lot of those. That that it, that's that's become one of the main. Um, the, I think there's a lot of overlap with the Never Trump. Folks and and uh, and and voters that are moved by by, by the choice issue, not a hundred percent, but I think the Venn diagram there, there's a there's a lot of overlap.
1: Yeah. Okay. We're going to come back to that in the next segment. We got a lot to talk about on that front. Um, before we do, though, um, Mike, it's worth noting we've, we're going to have Georgia on March 12th and then Arizona on March 19th, just a ha- couple of weeks away. That 20 percent not Trump number. The question is, well, the question I'd be asking is, how how firm is it, right? And is there any way for us to know now how firm it's going to be in November? And as we go into Georgia and Arizona, two key states that we're going to have in March, what threshold are you going to be looking for in the exits to indicate whether or not that lane has widened substantially since 2024? That would be my question.
0: That's not only the, the right question. That should be the only question that we're focused on right now, if you want to stop Donald Trump from being president of the United States again. Everything else is a distraction. And it's, it's an unfortunately becoming an expensive distraction because a lot of people are raising money trying to build all these coalitions of bringing people that are already going to be anti-Trump to get into this race when all of those millions of dollars would be far better spent chipping away at the Republican base that Anthony is talking about. It is about Dobbs. It's also about insurrection. The J6 stuff was a a pivotal moment in the minds of enough Republicans to break these folks off. If you look at the exit surveys, most of the Republicans who are saying, I can't do it anymore, are saying it's because of January 6th and the response afterwards. They're not saying it's abortion, but abortion is clearly playing there, especially with, with suburban women. But, but the J6 stuff was like, okay, the, the extremism stuff is really clear now. like This is dangerous, and everything else has been adding on top of that. And I don't think it's either or, by the way. I think it's a cumulative effect. The number I'm looking for is if it's sitting at 16, 17 to the, to the low 20s, that's plenty of room to play with. But it is a far more important, impactful number that everybody in the country, Democrats included, should be focusing their time, effort, energy, and resources on. It is the most critical part of Trump's election or or loss in November, is how many Republicans he's able to coalesce and bring home. Like I said. Of all those people right now, that seven, let's say it's 17, 18, 20% is the numbers that you're looking at. If 20% of Republicans right now are saying, I'm never Trump, come November, after all of the social pressure, all the social media, all the advertising, all the, everything comes into focus, 60, 70% of those folks are gonna come right back. Okay. But if Biden gets 10% of the GOP base, he's in a commanding position to win re-election now we've got to talk about no labels and third-party candidates and then his weaknesses in his own base. This is not the 2020 election, folks. We were talking about the Bannon line no race is the same. They're always different. There's a lot of the same metrics we're going to look at. There's a lot of things that rhyme with history here, but this is a foundationally fundamentally different race. The coalitions between white suburban college educated Republican women have been shifting. U.S.-born Hispanic men have been shifting. There's a lot of trouble with the African-American male base. There's, you know, the the Arabs in Michigan cause a problem North Carolina more in play now than it was. What's happening with Georgia? The 270 map is different. It's a different race. Yeah. There's a lot of variables. Okay. It's a different race. A lot of variables. There's a lot more variables. Yeah. And to say the Bannon line is not—that's not you know. First of all, the Bannon line was something that Steve Bannon agreed yeah, right. in 2020. It's not really a thing anymore. Right. I mean, we'll, we'll reference it. And we'll say it, but that's not what it is. Okay. So you, the, your question is the right one. How many of those 20% of Republicans right now saying, I'm not going to go back and vote for Trump, will actually hold? I'm going to say it's probably 40 45% of them, which is a damn good number to work with uh, to get this thing going.
1: Okay. Uh, one last question here while we talk about the Senate for a minute, um, well, Congress in general. Republicans are very likely going to take control of the Senate in January. Everyone's acknowledged that the map is incredibly tough for Democrats. Uh, they need to hold seats that are going to be next to impossible to win in West Virginia and Montana. Um, what could a MAGA majority leader do if Trump is in the white house and there's a MAGA speaker in the house, Mike Johnson, you know, hangs on. Um, although not even that is for certain at this point. Um, how could it look different than the first two years of Trump's first term, Anthony? Have you thought about this?
2: Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think I think we were all forced to this week, especially, right? I mean, you know, say what you will about Mitch McConnell, but he represented sort of the end of the old Republican Party, right? I mean, like we're seeing is just the latest, the latest piece of the face of the mountain to fall into the sea here, um, as this new Republican party that Mike has been alluding to really takes shape, right? And and that. You know, there there is no place for the old Republican establishment in the MAGA in the MAGA party, right? Uh, I want under- yeah, I mean, I I to underscore. that just, really
1: quickly and just give people a sense of what you're talking about. The House Freedom Caucus tweeted very snarkily after he stepped down. Our thoughts are with our Democratic colleagues in the Senate on the retirement of their co-majority leader Mitch McConnell. D de- yeah. Ukraine. Continue.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and so you know, and I think the House Republicans have already shown their. Their fealty to Donald Trump, and if uh, the senator from South Dakota is indeed the next majority leader, I mean, then it will be just another arm of the government that that not only uh, that Trump controls, right? And and I just think that um, you know the prospects of a second Trump term. There, there are an in incountable ways that a second Trump term feels feels a lot more dangerous than the first. I mean, they know what they're doing now, and and sure, Trump had enablers. In his first term people like kevin mccarthy that enabled him but but to have true allies and people that are that are that are uh fealty and on fe uh have ultimate fealty and and do not question him at all i think uh is incredibly dangerous for for the country and so i think that's why uh you know i think what you were alluding to democrats are going to push hard on the house um, there are a lot of races in california i know that um i'll be i'll, I'll be in a lot of those places i'm going to to Palmdale and, and, uh, India, you know, the Palm Springs area. I mean, these are the places that are going to determine the future of the country. And, and if we are dealing with a, uh, John Thune uh, Senate majority leader and president Trump, it may be the house. Uh, that's the last, you know, that is sort of the last, uh, the last stand against a, a full MAGA control of, of, of government.
1: Let's talk about IVF slash abortion versus immigration slash border security. So a couple of major stories about both of them this last week. Um, and these these could very much be the, the two biggest issues this election cycle. So um, last week, just as we were recording, uh, we got news about the Alabama Supreme Court ruling. That was my look ahead. Um, you know, that uh, frozen embryos created during IVF are technically unborn children under a state law called the Wrongful Death of a Minor Act. Um, And I just want to be really clear here that the court, um, even if they had other motivation, and certainly at least one of them seems to have, uh, was interpreting state law, not necessarily being an activist court. The blame here really lies at the feet of the Alabama state legislature. And so the thing I raised was well, let's see if there is an uprising or a significant fracturing within the pro-life community in Alabama, putting political pressure on the state legislature to fix this law. Because I think the thing they may have miscalculated is that there are a lot of pro-lifers who generally have a very favorable view of IVF because people who want to have babies need IVF. Just a quick cut in here, because after we recorded on Thursday... The Republican Alabama legislature did, in fact, pass a bill protecting IVF in the state. And they're doing that by giving doctors who provide IVF services immunity for the death or damage of embryos. So, since that ruling, several IVF providers have predictably suspended service in the state, uh, which has now uh, breathed new life into the rage over reproductive rights that's been animating Democrats since Dobbs. Uh, Republicans have been on their heels trying to figure out how to message on the issue, uh, and Democrats are now seizing the opportunity to attack. Uh, On Wednesday, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth took her bill to protect IVF access nationwide to the Senate floor, asking for unanimous consent. Uh, And then Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, a Republican from Mississippi, blocked the bill. It's not dead yet. It could go on through normal procedure, but it doesn't look like there are votes in either chamber at this point. Georgia, Missouri, and Arizona also have fetal personhood legislation on the books. This is all happening while another story about immigration and the border crisis is playing out. So on Friday, an undocumented migrant from Venezuela was charged with kidnapping and murdering a nursing student on a wooded trail on the University of Georgia's campus Uh, Jose Ibarra entered the U.S. illegally in September 2022 and was released with temporary permission to stay in the country. Uh, In August of last year, he was arrested in Queens and charged with endangering a child, but he was released before immigration officials could uh, ask local cops to keep him in custody. Then in October, he was arrested at a Walmart and charged with shoplifting, missed his court appearance, and a warrant was issued in December. Uh, This story has made Athens, Georgia a flashpoint in the immigration crisis and uh, violent crime committed by migrants. In 2020, there was research out of Cato uh, showing that illegal migrants are less likely to be arrested or convicted of a violent crime than native-born Americans, and legal immigrants are even less likely than those. But there's now polling showing that the number of Americans who think immigrants are more likely to commit violent crime, like rape or murder, is increasing. That's gone from 17% in September 2015 to now 32%. Uh, And there's a 20% drop in the number of people who said they're as likely as uh, other Americans. And lastly, on this issue, as we're recording today on Thursday, both Biden and Trump are making dueling visits to the U.S.-Mexico border. Mike, you've been saying Biden should go to the border for a while now. Um, What are you going to be looking at to see how effective this trip is? And I think more broadly, the big question here for me is cross-pressure. We're talking these two issues. We call in, in political parlance this, this is cross pressure when and uh, uh, one specific group of voters is receiving messages on uh, dueling messages on on certain issues. They're being pulled in multiple directions. We have IVF argument playing out uh, on one side, and then immigration and immigration crisis, border crisis, lack of confidence. However you want to frame it. On the other, the same group of voters is in the middle. These suburban women that we've been talking about. That's the bigger context i think people need to keep in mind here so maybe start with the border visit
0: well yeah let me let me let me just at the thirty thousand foot level frame that again because this is the crux of the 2024 election the battle between abortion rights and border reform is the battle for the margin of suburban white college educated women that's what this is about and both sides feel that they've got a strong hand to play the democrats for good reason believe that the Dobbs decision in abortion rights is going to continue to produce the type of turnout and vote percentages that uh, it has since the Dobbs decision was handed down which has benefited Democrats overwhelmingly. The Republicans are looking at the border crisis as as they always do and seeing these numbers pop like like shockingly. there's been an eight point increase since last month, and the number of Americans who believe that the situation on the border is a crisis. This will be, I believe, the dominant issue. Is it going to be enough to mitigate all of the defections of of the female votes to the Democratic Party? Probably not, but it doesn't have to. It, It will absolutely be a bulwark against that bleeding to the left from these voters, independent women, Republican women, And I don't think the Democrats have a firm understanding of how emotionally impactful the immigration issue is. I think there's a lot of East Coast provincialism, frankly, on this issue, where people have not experienced what we have seen through the history. Of 30 years of the, the, just the, the pure emotional impact of immigration as an issue. They're very comfortable with talking ever since, you know, the Roe decision and Roe Wade and abortion rights since the seventies. And they believe, and I think are cajoling themselves and lulling themselves into believing that that issue is going to save them. It's not. Okay. And let me tell you why. The first is, it's just like when Republicans talk about abortion, whenever they're doing that, they're losing because they're talking about an issue where the vast majority of Americans believe that Democrats are right on the issue. So they can talk about 15 weeks, they can talk about IVF, they can talk about a whole range of issues. As long as they're talking about reproductive rights, as long as the discussion is on that, they're losing voters. It's the exact same with immigration, okay? Democrats do not do well. In fact, on this issue alone, Joe Biden pulls twenty points behind. Joe Biden pulls twenty points behind Donald Trump on who's strongest on this issue. It is the biggest issue that is emerging in the campaign, and it is the worst issue for Joe Biden. So I've been saying for since mid January, the president needs to get down to the border and get the high ground on the policy and on the politics quickly because this is going to slip away from them. I'm glad they're there. I'm glad they're finally doing it. Let me explain what they need to do and what they're probably going to do. And then I'm going to explain how they're going to fix the mistake that they're going to make. Okay. What they need to do is get down there and start talking specifically about the policy fixes and demand that Republicans give them a bill today and say, I'll sign the bill today if you do these three, four, five bullet points. They, the Democrats have to get on offense on immigration. They are not used to this. There has been no meaningful democratic political or policy proposal in 30 years on border security. None. None. Okay? That's why they've been so susceptible to the open borders charge. And the reason for that is because Democrats believe that it needs to be done comprehensively. And if you do just the border, you're never going to get the pathway to immigration piece fixed. And they're right. But the politics have changed on this completely. If the Democrats don't seize the the, the moment to take the high ground on the political and policy implications and the specifics of what can be done to shut the border problem down now, they're going to lose. Okay, very good chance they lose in November. Okay, they're going to lose their coalition. That's why Donald Trump is saying, blame me. The mistake they will likely make, and they have been making, is by blaming Donald Trump. You don't blame somebody who is believed by 20 points more than you on this issue that they're the problem. That's just bad politics. I'm not saying it isn't right. I'm not saying it isn't accurate. I'm not saying it doesn't make you feel good. What I'm saying is it's bad politics. Fix the problem before you fix the blame. The Republicans will cannibalize themselves when Biden puts the policy proposal forward. He has to get the political high ground on the fix, not the blame. The easy part is the blame. It's what we've been doing, you know, the entire Trump era. The natural tendency is to want to blame Trump for shutting this down and the Republicans walked away. That's not the way you fix this. You have to reframe the Democratic Party as the party of solutions on this because this one instance of this this person who, who, who raped and killed this woman in Georgia is going to happen numerous times if the border doesn't get under control. Let me take it one step further and I'll wrap up here. What happens when you start to see some of these undocumented immigrants, most of whom are coming from places like Venezuela and China and Russia now? Not Mexico, not Central America, a wide i think a majority of those crossing now are not from central american countries anymore what happens when they start being involved in hamas demonstrations okay what happens when they start getting involved in other uh, you know questionable or politically charged activities and if you don't think there aren't nefarious paid efforts to have that happen in the context of this campaign you're missing the plot that is going to happen if, if Biden doesn't seize the high ground, this could very well be the Achilles heel that brings down the, uh, the, the coalition that he's already got a tepid hold on and is struggling to pull together.
1: I think the national security point on this is just, re- w- which you made, and I think Molly and Hagar have both made also, but seems like one that, that neither party really is talking about very much at all, but it seems very obvious and maybe a point of strength that Biden could lean into because it doesn't deal, you don't have to go near the racial tropes in order to say, no, this is a national security problem. Hey, you think Russia, Putin doesn't know that there's an open hole here at the border? Like, And, and if yeah. he says that first, it puts the right. Republicans on the defense, And he's got to
0: get them on defense quickly, because if he doesn't, he's going to own the whole problem. Right.
1: Sorry, Anthony, go ahead.
2: No, and and I think, you know, to Mike's point, there's been at least we've seen signs with the debate on the uh, on the immigration bill when uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's all blurring together now, that at least uh, politically, uh, the Biden team is willing is willing to sell out parts of that that the traditional Democratic coalition on this issue to seize that ground whether they can pull it off politically remains to be seen i mean i think again that the the debate over that bill did fall into that context of blaming trump when it when trump made the call uh and and essentially it was seen as killing that bill in the house um, then it became a it became a look they don't want to govern story rather that rather than hammering the policy uh, that mike's talking about so we'll see we'll see what happens what biden talks about when he's at the border and if they're capable of playing offense on on this issue this is not one that has been a a, a a good issue for for Democrats nationally. I mean, maybe maybe different in California as a as in the reaction to to uh, to certain styles of campaigning uh, decades ago. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is and and this is the the problem for Democrats, right? The, Im, Democrats are to abortion as republic or Democrats are to abortion as Republicans are to immigration, hundred percent. And I think that those. Are very much the uh, the battle lines for for the race ahead.
1: Okay, one last quick thing on this, especially on the cross pressure question. Going going back to that, we've talked about the presidential, we've talked about Congress. What we haven't talked about is how this same cross pressure translates to performance in down ballot races, and or whether it's different at all uh, on state ledge races and local races. Mike, do you have any thoughts? I mean, look, I, I think the history
0: of this is mixed, right? I mean, you can, you can I think, credibly argue that Donald Trump was the beneficiary of, of you know, the immigration issue as it was, or at least the racist, nativist elements of it in 2016. You can also argue that the backlash that happened in 2018 that swept the Democrats into power was the same issue. So it really depends on the environment of the times. And what I'm seeing, clearly, is the polling is moving sharply towards the Republican direction. And as Anthony said, if the Democrats don't win the house, we could be in a lot of trouble guys As a country we could be anyway, but imagine a world where, where, where there's a a Trump Supreme court, a Donald Trump in the white house, a Trump Senate and a Trump house. Like that's, I don't know what we do in that environment. Right. Except for.
1: Let me, let me just turn the gem a little bit here, because if you think about these issues as like where they, where the locus of control is. Immigration is very decidedly a federal issue, right? Now we have this this fight over the border states and them shipping migrants to other states so they can feel the pain of the economic support required to absorb migrants. Okay, that's playing out. But at at the end of the day, Congress has got to do something. Whereas on reproductive rights, that's been settled by this high court and it's essentially until Congress does something, and there's very little will, I think, to do anything at this point, this is a this is a state's issue. It's gonna be a state by state. That's where the power to control where the where the line is on reproductive freedom and, and how they're gonna legislate it, all that happens at the state level. So I wonder if this difference between or the asymmetry between having a federal issue, that's this animating the presidential and congressional races is different or polls differently on state-ledge races. Where the the battle over reproductive rights is really going to be effectuated, at least for the immediate term.
2: Except I, the one thing I would just say in response to that is just the uh, the appointment power for the judiciary okay. is, is a huge Fair. piece of this, and I think Democrats yeah. have been have been pretty good at focusing on Republican yeah. judges. So, um, yeah, but but I mean, but and, and I don't know how much you know I the race in the in the third district in in New York, the Santos race. And that was also a race. You don't remember the new I don't guys. Know if name. That was a function of timing. <laughs> no, just I'm yeah. I'm Just <laughs> yeah. kidding. Who was the Who was the old guy? <laughs> right. The new guy. Who's the old guy? Yeah. Uh, you know, well, he's certainly not as colorful. But uh, but I mean, immigration was a big issue in that race too. And and, and I you know it, it's hard it's hard because uh, you know watching these races from afar and how much that actually resonated and that and the timing of that election also uh, coincided with this moment where it did seem like like Trump took the blame for. Uh, for, or the credit uh, for for killing the bill uh, in Congress, the, the reform bill linked to the uh, to the Ukraine aid package and Israel aid package. Um, but but the but whether to the extent that that is a test case or just a moment of time, or whether there were other issues at play in that race, I don't know if uh, if either of you follow that closely enough. But uh, but I mean, is is there is there any hope there for Democrats on that issue, or, or was that just a one off?
1: Well, I mean, that's still a congressional. I'm thinking about state legislators, t- state legislative races specifically. But
2: Oh, legislatures. Yeah. I, I,
0: yeah, okay. I don't see any difference. Okay. And like I said, I think there's been a sea change in the old adage, Tip O'Neill's old adage that all politics is local. I don't, I don't believe that anymore. I think all politics is national. People aren't making a differentiation on the policy. They want a pro or anti-immigration mayor or city council member or school board member now. Like it's of no consequence to them. We are we are far far past that as a country in understanding which level of government is responsible for which role. They're looking for a champion on every cause they have at every level of government on both sides. So so no, I think, and that's why they've chosen this issue. And like I said, the the, the situation. And let's be let's be really clear. There was a there was a been a a marked decline in immigration from two thousand seven to two thousand and twenty. OK, so all of the hysteria and caravan stuff that was manufactured on Fox News and the right wing media ecosystem was just getting their people more and more angry. It wasn't growing in public sentiment. That's not the case anymore. There, the, the numbers are exploding of people crossing the border and have been since since Joe Biden took office. I mean, candidly. OK, and 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 and, and, and it's on his plate. He's it, It's his problem. It is. That's a legitimate, legitimate attack. And he's going to have to solve it. And, and the Republicans are not going to help him. And so he's going to have to seize the moment and seize the policy high ground before he seizes the moral high ground. And that is going to be a conundrum for a lot of Democrats. But here's where it gets really interesting. The vast majority of Latino voters have moved to the center on this issue, too. If you look where the Hispanic rightward shift is that we've talked about, or at least I've talked about ad nauseum, uh, it's most measurable on the border. It's in the Rio Grande Valley. It's in southern Arizona. It's in New Mexico's second congressional district. It's, the Latinos, Hispanics are saying, fix the damn border. And so there's a lot of D.C. Latino voices that are saying, oh, this is where Latinos are at, but that's not where the data or the election results are saying it's at. And so Biden has the opportunity to redefine, I think, this issue from the the, the cul-de-sac, the political cul-de-sac that Democrats have put themselves in and start saying immigration is not this, this racial ethnic issue. It's this broader national issue. And there's Latino support for that because it's true.
1: All right. Now that we've caught up on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what else is going on under the radar that we should be paying attention to. Mike, what do you got?
0: Uh, well, I was going to talk about the border issue again <laughs> a little bit longer. I didn't know we were going to talk about this <laughs> because because I do believe it is it is central uh, uh, to, to 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 what we're talking about. I'm not going to go on anymore about it. I think it was a good you know segue to this. But you know, Biden and Trump being there. When we're recording, they're, they're both going to be there within the hour. Trump will be there at Eagle Pass and, and, and uh, Joe Biden will be in Brownsville. Um, there's going to be kind of a split screen thing going on. I really want to impart to listeners how significant and impactful this issue is as a political professional. I have never seen anything like this issue before. And I've seen Dobbs. I've seen abortion rights being removed, and I know how important that is. If if you don't think this is a, an issue that will move votes, if you don't think this is an issue that will move white Republican women votes, you're wrong. It will. And the Democrats have an opportunity to seize this issue and take the high ground. In the best case, or completely lose it. Uh, I think shatter their coalition and make their chances of reelection significantly diminished if they do not
1: okay i've got a couple of quick things bitcoin everybody loves when i talk about bitcoin is having a moment this week um but here's uh, i could say a lot of things about this but here's what i want to highlight um obviously bitcoin's on a huge bull run right now but it has surpassed all-time highs in 30 plus countries including china and india while still being $10,000 below its all-time high in U.S. dollars. Think about that for a minute. What does that mean? It means that currency debasement in 30-plus countries, including China and India, in the last two years has been so bad that it is now hitting nominal all-time highs in those currencies, even while being $10,000 below its all-time high in U.S. dollars. This is something I think many people who tend to dismiss uh, Bitcoin um, on its face seem to be missing. The attraction of a financial technology that allows you to save and avoid currency debasement, massive inflation as as a result of money expansion, it's most attractive to people who live in currency regimes that are not as privileged as the U.S. dollar regime. So if you are living in the United States, you have access to the U.S. dollar, arguably the world's best currency, by far, as your home currency. Every other country in the world wants U.S. dollars. Why? Because it's the one that inflates the least, but it still inflates. Bitcoin is a life raft for many of these people who don't have an access uh, access to the U.S. dollar, and so they're pouring into um, a way to hold on to the value of their labor and um, I think that is an underreported uh, dimension uh, of this story. So you'll see lots of stories about Bitcoin you know, uh, going on a huge bull run because of the ETFs. Yep, that's a really big story. But one thing you're missing is how much currency debasement has happened in other countries just in the last two years. Anthony, what'd you bring?
2: Uh, well, actually, I, I was looking backwards a little bit I, uh, and, and just... Uh, Point of personal privilege here. Sort of delving back into some history about thirty years ago, where, where I first met Mike. Um, the LA Times columnist Gustavo Arellano launched a four-part series, and Mike, I, we didn't talk about this before, but four-part series on the history of and the rise of Latino politics in California. I've long thought this was uh, uh, just a, an interesting story. I think it's it's connected on a personal level, connected to my own sort of political coming of age. It's the era. Post Proposition One Eighty Seven, where Mike, Mike and I sort of came into came to know each other, um, and uh, and where we thought this was sort of a model for the future. I think now a generation later, there's some questions that I know Mike has been on the forefront of raising that maybe California was the exception, not the rule. But um, anyone that wants to go down the rabbit hole, there's a a, a really interesting four part uh, primer, I would say, on the rise of Latino political power. In California, how it in in Los Angeles specifically, but really, it's the story of uh, of uh, the change in California politics that uh, that really brought California from a from a purple state to a to a solidly blue state. It's uh, an interesting piece of political history.
1: Nice. We'll put a link in the show notes today.
0: Yeah, put a link in there, guys. It, let me just jump on that. It is so good and it's so well done. It's not a terribly long read. But the one of the reasons that I really liked it is I, I'm recognizing now as an older guy, it's like you can see the seeds of this story starting to take you know root and sprout in other parts of the country um, where you're going to see a political change happen. And to just learn it and get that background, it's a really remarkable four-part series It talks about uh, the, the tensions with Latino politics, why they were happening, the class positions, the geographical differences. Really, really good. Very well done.
1: Okay, a couple of other things we need to mention though before we go. These aren't necessarily look aheads, but there are other big stories we didn't get to. Um, Illinois. We're still waiting for a decision from the Supreme Court about Colorado blocking Trump from the primary ballot um, under the Insurrectionist Ban of the Fourteenth Amendment. But this week, a Circuit Court judge in Cook County, Illinois, removed Trump from the ballot in the state. And then the second is that the Supreme Court uh, agreed to hear Trump's arguments, at least half of his argument that he has immunity from prosecution. Um, this has raised some questions about whether, uh, Trump is going to get tried in DC for his role in trying to steal the 2020 election, or if he'll be tried before election day at all. Um, there are a lot of lawyers who are reading the possible timelines very differently. So we're keeping an eye on it. Um, but what it does mean is it is a delay, certainly in the timeline of him being tried. We just don't know how much. So we'll come back to that. Uh, okay. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where can we find you on the internet, Anthony?
2: uh anthony york 49 and all the usual platforms um i'm a, a, in, in a moment of uh of reflection and recovery now more than anything so i don't know this is about this is about as public of as i've gotten nice. but uh, uh but i'll, I'll be there I'll, I'll be i'll be back in uh defending democracy as uh, as it as it as the fight for as the fight here ramps up
1: amazing mike where are you this week
0: I'm on I'm on Twitter or X, as it were, at Madrid underscore Mike. Uh, but give Anthony a follow. When he gets back on, it's good stuff. You're not going to want to miss it. It's good stuff.
1: All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought. We love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.